0: Welcome to the Econ Pop Podcast, where we sift through the haystack of popular culture to find the needle of economics within, and then stab you with it. I'm your host, Andrew Heaton. Our website is econstories.tv, where you can subscribe, comment on this podcast, or find links and other content related to today's conversation. Joining me today are Steve Horwitz, the Charles A. Dana Professor and Chair of the Department of Economics at St. Lawrence University, and Paul Cantor, the Clifton Waller Barrett Professor of English at the University of Virginia. And I'm Andrew Heaton, a baritone. Steve, Paul, welcome back. Thank you for joining me. It's nice it's good to be here. And today we're discussing RoboCop, which I am completely new to. I don't know how it is that I made it through the 1980s and 1990s without having seen this wonderful film. But uh, I, I watched it and really enjoyed it. It's really fun. Um, there's lots of great economics for us to talk about, but uh, there's just there's a, a robotic cop. It's difficult to, uh, to go awry with that premise, but it's a really fun movie and I enjoyed it.
1: Yeah, yeah. I, you know, it's. Uh, I if I have seen it before, it was when it first came out, and I didn't remember any of it. So it, it was it was fun for me to, to watch again as well. I enjoyed it actually. I enjoyed yeah,
2: it. never underestimate a Paul Verhoeven movie.
1: Yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, for our purposes today, we're going to be talking about RoboCop in relation to public goods, and mm-hmm. uh, there's there's lots of different angles for this in the film. Uh, But one of the things that I found amusing that probably shows how far down the libertarian rabbit trail I've gone is that I wasn't sure whether the white guys in three-piece suits were evil or not until they finally get a guy shot about 20 minutes into the movie. Because at first I'm like, oh, this is great. They're building a private city outside of Detroit. Detroit's (laughs) terrible. They, They seem to have made a private city as an alternate to living in this godforsaken place. Well done, guys in suits. But then they, you know, they get a guy killed, and it becomes fairly apparent that they're all greedy SOBs and that kind yep. of thing. But uh, uh, it, it does it does bring up the, the whole privatization versus public element very yep. quickly.
1: It, it does, and and you know, as a native Detroiter, uh, this you know this film has particular poignancy for me. Uh, though there's though I, you know there was no there was no nothing in the film that visibly was Detroit uh, even today. Uh, but yeah, so I think certainly one of the things one of the things this film asks us to think about is is the idea of privatization, right? I mean, we have sort of privatized police. We have this private company coming in to take over the police force to clean it up. And one of the things I want to point out that that word privatization. This is this film is actually a really good example of this point. Even people who are small government types, who are friendly to the private sector, you know, will say all these wonderful things. Privatization is great. We need more privatization. And and I want to stop them and say just hang on a second okay what you know what do we mean by privatization if what we mean by privatization is taking government monopolies and handing them over to private people to run that's not much of an improvement what we should be talking about instead of privatization is demonopolization right we should be talking about increasing competition not just making public things private and so one of the interesting things about this film is and it's Certainly echoes with things we see today. Even the public schools getting more run by these private corporations and things like Halliburton and all these you know private security firms. So all these kind of things that we see today that these look like the private sector, but are really just uh, uh, the the public
2: sector contracting out to the pi- private sector. Probably, in ways that
1: I don't think improved things.
2: This was certainly true in, in the Soviet Union yeah. when. Was, went under that uh, it was talk about privatization but really it was just recreation of the old state monopolies now in private hands uh, yep. but no yep. real uh, privatization
0: Well, so, so, so then out of curiosity uh, are, are both of you you're more concerned with the monopoly of services than you are with whether they're public or private
1: they both matter, okay. Um, but yeah, I mean, what you know, from a from the economist perspective, right? What what generates high quality and innovation and low costs is competition, not the private part, right? Mm-hmm. You know, you. It, for example, before the advent of of, of, of of satellite TV, you know, private the cable companies were private monopolies, right? Mm-hmm. And they were not known for their responsive customer service. Neither was AT and for that matter. Right. Back in the exactly. Advance, right. You know, you can you can be privately owned, but but if you don't have competition, you're 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 not that much better, if at all, than the government monopoly that you might be replacing or standing in for. Uh,
0: I take your point, I, and and to go back to schools, um, I'm vaguely familiar with the, the schooling system in Washington D.C. I've, I've written a little bit about it, and. Uh, I mean, they they have your standard public schools, which aren't doing very well. Um, you have a few private schools, but then you have a lot of charter schools, yep. which are, if if to, to dumb down the issue quite a lot. The charter schools, at least in D.C., are basically public schools, which are their own entity unto themselves. There's no overarching system that's shuffling around resources between them. Um, they're they're left to their own, and they're they're not very onerous in terms of regulation. They still have to meet the standards. Um, of, of you know, a, a certain set of standards for kids to get a high school degree and that kind of thing, but they're much less restricted, and they also need to be good in order to attract students, and as a result, the, the charter schools have done a, a wonderfully good job and are are a, a huge net benefit to all of the kids in Washington, D.C., whether they're poor or rich, um, and, and that's a very good example of, of a non-monopoly situation fostering that.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I mean, they're 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 at least what the charter schools are trying to do, as you say, is sort of get out from some of those regulations and give parents some choice there. Um, you know, not as much as they'd have with a genuine sort of privatization of the schools, but certainly better than the status quo.
0: Um, you know, and I was thinking while I was watching the movie uh, because in in RoboCop, the you know the the police force has been contracted out to a private firm. Um, presumably, a lot of the other functions of government have as well, and and had. Um, if, if this company reaches its fruition, they will, you know, create this masterstroke Delta City, which will be a completely private-run company town. Um, I'm aware of a town in the United States called Sandy Springs, it's in Georgia, which is more or less done what they're they're doing, um, and uh, it's worked out incredibly well for them. Uh, Sandy Springs is a, a suburb of Atlanta. Um, they were, I think, they were going bankrupt, or at least they had some financial trouble, um, 10, 15 years ago, and what they decided to do was basically take uh, a number of services that the town had hitherto been providing at a loss and kind of auction them off to, to private entities to do the same thing. And uh, the private entities, which tend to be much better at um, Getting by on fewer resources and are a little bit more nimble uh, have been able to do that. Now the, the town still exists; it's not the town itself is not owned by a company. Um, you know, it's still democratically elected councilmen and mayors and all that kind of stuff. And, and those people, in turn, select which private group is going to be working. Uh, but at least in their case, um, having the private element come in in a competitive bidding system—that's uh, the key—has yeah has enabled them to be a lot more efficient in, in terms of their resources and able to save money as a result.
2: Yeah.
1: Well, and as you say, if, if it's a competitive bidding system, right, then then that that's the that's the key to the process is that if that contract's renewable every, you know, two years or four years or whatever, at least you've got some kind of check or some kind of incentive for the private suppliers to, to do a good job. The question of course is, you know, to what degree are the folks the political actors judging those firms by the quality of their work as opposed to, you know, kind of crony capitalist considerations. But, but certainly, I can imagine that arrangement being better than the, than the status quo, though perhaps not as good as a genuine, genuine competitive market provision of those services.
0: Well, I'm curious with with the film. I mean, you know, we're we're all f- very much private sector, pro competition, limited government type people here. Uh, but there's certainly a dark side to privatizing things, and uh, and that's you know very much uh, in the film that the you know taking this very essential service of cops and and making it a private entity has made life worse for the people of Detroit and for the cops themselves. Um, and I'm, I'm sure that there are examples of this. I mean, like what springs to my mind is probably defense contractors and, and the, the kind of incestuous relationship between defense contractors, um, our foreign policy, and very, very, very large amount of tax dollars going to them. Um, so I, I could, if, if we were to play it the other way around, I could see this being very problematic of having, say, a privatized court system or a privatized... Um, you know, a police force for that matter. Uh, can, can you all see a dark side to it? Would it only be the non uh, non-monopoly element, or, or are are you are, are there certain things which should only be public? Uh,
2: very little, in my view. In fact, privatized court systems have been relatively successful, uh, uh, where both parties accept arbitration and. Uh, you get uh, swift uh, results uh, and uh, evidently in most cases reasonable uh, results. Uh, If you go back to the history of the English common law, in fact, the whole English legal system, one of the reasons it did well for a couple of centuries is you had competing uh, legal venues, and if you couldn't sue in one court, you sued in another, and it kind of kept uh, all the courts alert, and they couldn't be uh, uh, too delaying, or the business would switch to the to the other set of courts. So. Uh, I think that's an example where we may well be on our way to seeing an effectively uh, privatized court system develop in this yeah. country, and where people, uh, the judges, are forced to be people who deliver good opinions so that two sides will agree to let them arbitrate. And I would just add to that.
1: That we're, as Paul suggested, we're already seeing those sorts of things built into contracts. So we have people using essentially private systems of dispute resolution, which is a perhaps you know a, a fancy way to put it. But we're all we have tons of private se- provision of security too. I mean, I, I'm guessing that you know, part, you know apartment building you may live in, Andrew, right, may have private security guard, right? That's privatized. You're, you're giving me a lot more credit than. Well, maybe so. <laughs> okay. due for my living no, arrangements. Not, okay, so there's a drunk guy at the door that keeps an eye on. Yeah, things. my roommate. Yeah. <laughs> but, I mean, you know, we, we, we see private security all the time in, in office buildings and in stores and so on. And, again, those are, they don't have the monopoly power over force that exactly that state, you know, sponsored police do. But they are, they are competition for them in some sense, and they're providing security. And they're often there precisely because the government provision of that, that service uh, isn't, isn't effective. Right. You can't put a cop on every corner and they don't respond quickly. Uh, You know, we're talking about Detroit or, you know, all these horrible stories in Detroit a year or so ago about response times for police and fire. Right. So so again, you know, just just because government is doing it doesn't mean it's doing it well. And the fact that it doesn't do it well leads people to search out those alternatives and we're seeing it happen.
0: Well, and correct me if I'm wrong, in terms of public goods in and the relationship between private citizens and the government and, and public goods—it seems to me that there's kind of three broad schools of thought. Um, on the on the far far left, you have Marx and this idea that everything should be public, uh, or at least you know all manner of industry should be public, um, and that basically everything ought to be part of the community, and that means part of the government. Um, and so that's on the far left side of it. Um, in the middle, you'd have kind of your your what I'm going to call a a traditional classical liberal. You've got Adam Smith who says that the the public sector, the government should exist to, I think he says, mint coins, um, enforce contracts, defend the borders, and then there's one more. It might be police. Uh, but there's there's basically four things which he sees as the natural domain of government and necessary. I, I would fall into that kind of camp. And then on, on the far right, um, you you have Murray Rothbard, who would be of the opinion that um, there really shouldn't be any type of, of government um, service or entity that it all ought to be private. Is yep. is, is that a fairly broad but accurate representation of the, I, the, the camps there?
1: Yeah, I think so. I mean, you could put in between Marx and Smith, you could put sort of modern progressives American liberals or whatever, and, and conservatives too, for that matter, sort of each of whom has their own pet set of things they think that the state should do, mm-hmm. uh, that lies somewhere between classical liberalism and, and sort of full-out socialism. But yeah, I mean, I think that that's the spectrum. Um, one thing I, I would add, we have to be careful with this phrase public goods, okay? Because there's a sense in which it's used in, in sort of common conversation to mean goods that are provided by government. Um, that at, at the expense of the public through public taxation. But for economists, public goods has a different meaning. Okay? I mean, public goods um, are goods that have particular features, right? That that they are joint in consumption, which means that more than one person can consume them at the, at the same time, and that they're non-excludable. You can't exclude non-payers. From, from consuming them. So if you think about, you know, a be- the classic example is a beautiful vista, or a park, right, that my enjoyment of, a, of Central Park doesn't make yours any, any less weak, right, or doesn't, doesn't take away from yours, and, and, and it's hard to exclude non-payers, right, you know, you can even think about radio and TV over the air signals have this feature to them too. So these are what we mean by, by, by public goods. The question of whether public goods should be provided by government is a separate question. Right? And you can sort of see reasons why you might think that they would be. Um, the question is who, you know, who has the incentive to provide the good if, if, you, if you can't exclude people from it, for example. But we find ways of doing this all the time. Right? My favorite example with students is drive-in movies, okay? mm-hmm. which are not too many of them anymore, but drive-in movies seem like they have elements of a public good to them. You put up this giant screen. And you would broadcast the sound and why, how would you make sure that only people who paid for it could see it? Well, what do you do? You locate it out in the middle of the woods, right? Where, where you know, it's harder for people to get to unless they really want to see the movie. Well then you think, well, why wouldn't people just sort of stand you could put up you know, you could put up a fence and try to block people out and but people could stand at the fence and watch it. But so what do they do? They separate the sound and the and the picture. So you can only get the sound if you're within broadcast range or if you're old like me when you used to hang the speaker on the car. So what they've done is taken a public good and made it into a a private good by separating the sound and the, and the and the and the movie which by the way is also why you don't see adult movies at the drive-in cuz the sound doesn't matter right so that, that's yep. <laughs> what are
2: we going to do in adult movies speaking of which what <laughs> yeah we should do an adult movie
0: <laughs> <laughs> i i can think of so many wonderful double entendres that we can come up with about economics using existing titles of adult films yeah uh-huh. <laughs> i think that would be fairly easy to do Uh Uh, Well, here's another question to pose to you. So uh, it it occurred to me the the Adam Smith um, maxim that I'd forgotten was that the the natural role of the government would be to do those things which have a a clearly uh, beneficial effect to the the general public but cannot be handled by the private sector in aggregate. Um, And I would say that um, I, I, I guess... We can make a distinction between something that benefits everybody um, that ought to be innately run by the government versus something that necessarily could be done uh, by the private sector in theory, but but can't because it's all too tiny. And the the example that springs to my mind would be, say, like the the space program in the fifties. Today, there's a wonderful private element to to the space program, and all the really cool stuff is happening with SpaceX and with uh, with with the various entities which are privately owned. But say, like, if we go back to 1950, there were no aeronautics companies capable of putting a guy on the moon. So, would, would you would either of you see a point at which um, the government ought to be facilitating a very large scale project?
2: Well, who says we needed to put a man on the moon? That's
1: it. No, well, right. I, I do, uh, but granted, no,
0: I'm biased. No,
2: here's the problem with the Adam Smith formulation. It's it's a failure of imagination. People keep saying uh, they uh, uh, only the government can do it, uh, and they don't realize there are alternatives. Uh, a friend of mine, Yuri Maltsev, was a Russian economist. You know, talked about how the mayor of Moscow said after the fall of communism, you know, "Oh yes, we're going to have capitalism now, but of course, we're going to still do the same things that you do, that you have the government do, like run the phone company and uh, run the post office and provide bread." Like he couldn't <laughs> imagine how a private uh, enterprise system could provide bread to people. You know, it's so essential, and you can't risk the private system doing it. So uh, in the absence of the government, our whole approach to space might have been completely different. We might have had commercial development of space where we would be at a better point now than we are. We now are a kind of dead end in space exploration, and maybe it is because the, uh, of the way the government handled it. It always struck me that the space shuttle was the kind of vehicle only a government committee could invent, uh, and that no sound commercial uh, enterprise would have followed that principle. Again, we've got the problem of alternate history here. You think uh, the NASA did a great job. Uh, with space exploration. Maybe it didn't. Maybe it did a terrible job. There are lots of signs. You know, like the safety record of the space shuttle was fantastic. I think it had a 2% catastrophic failure. Uh, so, uh, 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 yeah, this, is a, this is
1: the economics of opportunity cost, right? I mean, we, we just don't know what the alternative uses of those resources would have been. Um, and and it's you know the very i mean even the way you framed it andrew right is that that no private entity could have taken this on the economist in me says well yeah that's a signal that it wasn't worth it right that 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 use of resources wasn't the most valuable one if no one was willing to 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 recognize that even pooling together large amounts of you know, a large amount of resources from various places would, would have been, a, a you know, a useful way to do it. There's no doubt we got great things out of the space program, you know, even beyond Velcro and Tang. right? It produced <laughs> things, but, but we'll never know the road not taken. We'll never know what we might have produced with those resources otherwise. And so I think it's an important point here. You know, you can if, even if you're skeptical of government doing all of these things, it doesn't mean you have to deny that historically what government has done has produced, positive outcomes. The question always is, as compared to what? And there's Paul's failure of imagination, right? I mean, we, we, you know, we have to sort of construct some kind of argument about what the alternative would have been.
2: Yeah, a perfect example is the development of railroads in the 19th century. People said only the government could do it. As a result, we had railroads overbuilt uh, uh, developed too quickly, complete distortion of the economy uh, as a result, again, of crony capitalism, of all this money that the government channeled into railroad building, because they thought that was the greatest thing of mm-hmm. the future. And again, you can look at, if the government had developed the computer industry, yeah. uh, we would never have the progress we've had today. And right. believe that uh, we got more out of Steve Jobs and Apple uh, than we got out of the government.
1: And a really good example of this, of sort of that kind of alternative future, and this is a film we might consider for a future film, is Terry Gilliam's Brazil which nicely illustrates you know sort of things that would happen if government did x y and z we have the wacky looking computers in that world where governments built them all and the heating systems that don't make any sense because it's all government run so so again there's a there's you know we can we we can imagine what it would look like on the other side if government did all these things
0: well to to play devil's advocate really quick with with computers uh... i mean my understanding is the internet came out of darpa which was a a defense research program so
2: and this is the confusion between technological innovation and commercialization. This is a mistake people make again and again and again. Uh, uh, Some of the technical material for computers surely came out of government operations, but They were essentially, I won't say worthless, but they were limited worth because the government had no idea to commercialize it. We celebrate technical inventors, and we don't celebrate the entrepreneurs who translate a technical invention into a commercially viable enterprise. That's what counts. Yes,
1: yes, yes, and it's the distinction between invention and innovation. It's You can invent lots of things, but turning an invention into an innovation requires the market, it requires entrepreneurship, it requires all of those things, and that, I, Paul, I couldn't have said it better. That's, that's yeah. right on.
2: James Watt invented the steam engine. We put him on a pedestal. If it had been up to him, nothing would have come with the steam engine. In fact, while his patents held, no progress was made. It was only when later entrepreneurs came along and they made a commercially viable product out of that that we had the steam revolution. And and to go
1: back to an earlier subject, you can think of all these technological revolutions of the 20th century and how so many of them were actually driven forward by their application uh, in, in the market for sex, right? VCR sold because you could watch... Adult movies in the privacy of your own home. The first profitable businesses on the internet were adult sites, right? That I mean, that's the real story: is taking the technology and turning it into something people care about and are willing to pay for. Well, Steve, you haven't
0: completely convinced me on NASA, but I am <laughs> going to root for an adult film as our next film, based <laughs> on your, your two responses here. Um, I think good, good points. All
2: showgirls. While we're on Verhoeven, <laughs> showgirls.
0: Well, most of the films we've watched that were shot in the 1980s at least had eight seconds of gratuitous nudity. Yeah. Um, so yeah. We, we, we have set a precedent we can work with. Um, so two more things that I want to touch on, and, and I appreciate your uh, your input on all of this, by the way. And I'm, as a side note, my, my personal economics mentor is Gene Epstein, who's the, the oh, yeah. financial editor at Barron's and at least once every three months, kind of out of the blue, he'll just call me and go, do you still think NASA was necessary? You thug no. and we'll we'll <laughs> go through this whole diatribe about how I wanted to break down his door in the 1950s and take his tax money and flush it down a rocket and all these different things. So he'll be tickled to know that you guys were were uh, uh, driving home that argument that much further. piling so, on so the the two the two other things that I wanted to touch base on. Um, it's not central to the movie, but they do allude to it. Uh, a couple of times uh, is the idea of automation. Um, I, you know, they're not—they're not constantly talking about losing their jobs to robots. Um, I, I think it's more the—at um, the, 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 least economically—the private sector versus public sector seems to be where they're going for. But there definitely is this whole element of automation. They've literally automated a a ro- or a cop in the form of RoboCop. Uh, there's a scene where there's a realtor, which appears to be a moving computer, uh, escorting them through the house. And later on, they talk about how, you know, you shouldn't be a cop because you're just going to get automated. They'll, they'll all be robots pretty soon anyway. Um, I think that this is a, a trope that you oftentimes see in science fiction. And uh, I see very little evidence that um, people at large should fear automization. Rather, they, there are certainly industries that should. But for the most part, I, I think we're safe. I'm curious as to what, what you guys think about automization. Paul?
2: Well, it's that old uh, question that, you know, we talk about Luddites. Uh, people are always claiming that the latest technology is going to put human beings out of work. The record is that there's initial disruption and the, the, the buggy whip manufacturers uh, have to go out of business, but uh, by and large, Uh, new technologies increase the economic pie, they make everyone more productive, and over time more people end up being employed. Uh, uh, And also there's the the factor that uh, each new technology frees human beings from forms of drudgery. First, it was that people had to work in factories. Some people, of course, still do, but the percentage of people working in factories has gone down, and that's probably a good thing. Many people had the equivalent of factory jobs in information technology. Accountants who had to sit there totaling up numbers and so on. Now they're freed from those tasks by automation, and uh, in many cases can go on to do things that are more productive.
1: Yeah. And, yeah, and. and, and,
2: and that's exactly right,
1: and I just add, but add two elements to that. One, um, why would we not want to be able to produce more stuff with less human labor? Right. That's that's the that's the key. That's that is human progress. Right. right there. I'm
0: with you. And like, I got into an argument um, a few weeks ago. You know, here in New York, the the plight of taxi cab drivers is one which everybody, not everybody, many people are sympathetic to. Um, And uh, and so when Google starts talking about having an automated car, people go, you know, that's going to put a lot of folks out of business. Well, yes, it will. But think about how amazing life would be if all cars were automated. For one thing, all...
1: And all those cab drivers are now free to satisfy wants that are currently unsatisfied. True, right? There there
0: are going to be new jobs that are created as a process. Um, To go back to the Luddite example that Paul used a moment ago, um, there are not um, roving gangs of people that were put out of business from looms that are 200-year descendants like that. They were absorbed into other industries. So there is a a shakeup. But you think about um, the amount of labor freed up, as you point out, um, the amount of time freed up for everybody else, uh, because you could, uh, you know, just hop in a car and, and do your do your read a book or do anything else as you were going to work, um, and then the fact that you'd probably see a whole transformation to cities because you could rather than park your car and pay for a parking space, you can rent it out as a taxi cab and save some mm-hmm. more labor.
1: I don't know if we've told this story in one of the earlier podcasts, but there's a, there's a, a famous there's a story it may be, you know, uh, uh, whether it's true or not isn't clear, but of the American economist who, who goes to China to observe the, the, the creation of a canal, right? And uh, the story's told about Milton Friedman, but you know it may not have actually been Friedman. Um, so, they, so they go to China to observe the, to this canal and the delegation the Chinese delegation takes him out and, and the economist notice that, that the Chinese have the, building this canal, there's men out there with shovels. And finally, the economist says, I have to ask you, you know, uh, you're building this big canal. Why, why do you have men with shovels? Why aren't you using earth movers and machinery? And the delegate, the Chinese delegation guy says, well, you know, if, if we did that, think of all the jobs we would destroy. And the American economist says, oh, I thought you wanted to build a canal. It's a jobs program. If it's a jobs program, take away their shovels and give them spoons.
0: <laughs> right? So...
1: You know, that, that if, if the whole, I mean, we, one of the fallacies we, we have around this issue is this jobs fallacy, that more jobs is good. It's easy to create jobs. We can destroy all the farm machinery. That'll create millions of jobs. What we want to do is create value, not jobs necessarily, right? We want, to, we want people to be doing work that creates value. And so we have to get away from this sort of worship, this reification of jobs as being the thing that we want to create. It's not just jobs. It's value. Create value. The jobs will come.
2: And there are often jobs that are themselves despised or criticized, like factory work and, 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 and farm labor and so on.
0: Uh, good points, all. I'm completely with you on that. I think that w- w- all of the research that I've read, uh, e- even noting that people are going to lose their jobs, generally, uh, um, yeah, they're going to get back and, and life will be better overall. And uh, I don't think you can fight progress either. You can hinder it, but you're only going to make it worse for yourself if you try to. Um, so I, yep. I, for one, welcome our robot overlords uh, and their, their mighty police forces. And I will be living in Delta City and having a wonderful time there. Uh, so we're going to close up here. Any, any closing thoughts from either
1: of you? I, I have one. I have to. I, I was telling my good friend Ian Scoble that I was watching this movie. And, and he gave me the best description of the evil robot, not Robocop, right? You know, the other robot that mm-hmm. they trot out. That you know, He said, it looks like a giant Norelco with feet. And I thought, that's perfect. That's exactly what that thing looks like. So I have to give Ian credit
2: for that.
0: Absolutely. Paul, any thoughts?
2: Uh, I'm, I'm just trying to contemplate that image. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, um, as I said, I, I welcome our robotic overlords, and I'm I, uh, very happy to talk to both of you and appreciate your input. And uh, I will rejoin you shortly for our riveting discussion of the economics of showgirls. <laughs> This has been the Econ Pop Podcast. Thanks for listening. For more information about our show or to visit our archives, go to EconStories.tv. To watch the Econ Pop web series, go to YouTube.com slash EconStories. It's like this show, only shorter and with moving pictures.